Welcome back. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And this is Serial Banter. Tonight, we are talking about the disappearance of Alexis Tierra Murphy. This is a case that Jessica has actually followed from the beginning. And recently, there's been a huge development in the case. So we wanted to cover that now. Alexis was a 17-year-old heading into her senior year of high school. She lived in a town called Shipman, Virginia. So this is a really small town in Nelson County, Virginia. So a small town inside of a small county. She lived with her mother, her grandmother, and her two brothers. She has been described as being very outgoing, but also very humble and kind. I don't know if you saw pictures of her, M, but she is gorgeous. Yeah, I did. She was really beautiful. She has this very infectious smile, and you can tell she just seems like such a sweet girl. She was very athletic. She played volleyball for her high school team, but she was also a girly girl. Her family talks a lot about how she was really into fashion, hair, makeup, all of that stuff. She was also really big on social media. She had a huge following, especially for a girl from this really small town. She had plans of going off to college and playing volleyball wherever she ended up for college and possibly doing something in fashion one day. This case got a lot of local coverage from the very beginning. If I remember correctly, it also got a good bit of national coverage as well because the FBI was involved. This was partially because there had actually been a number of disappearances in the central Virginia region around this time. And we'll actually touch on that a little bit later on in the episode. On the evening of Saturday, August 3rd, 2013, Alexis was headed out to Lynchburg, Virginia to do some shopping and get hair extensions before getting her senior portraits done later that week. Lynchburg is about 35 miles away from where she lived in Shipman. She was driving her dad's white Nissan Maxima. That same night, Her mother was working an overnight shift at her job at the post office, but Alexis's grandmother woke up in the middle of the night and realized that Alexis hadn't come home. This was something that was totally out of character for her. If she was ever going to be late or out past her curfew for any reason, she would always call her family and let them know where she was. The family immediately called the police and posted on social media. And within a day, the Nelson County Sheriff's Office got the FBI and Virginia State Police involved. They started investigating Alexis's disappearance and sending out search parties. On Monday, August 5th, FBI and Virginia State Police searched the properties on Cannery Loop in Lovingston, Virginia, just off Route 29. This was the last location Alexis's cell phone connected with a cell tower. The next day, August 6th, the white Nissan Maxima that Alexis was driving was found in the parking lot of a movie theater in Charlottesville, Virginia which was odd because Alexis was headed to Lynchburg and Charlottesville is about 40 miles in the opposite direction from her home. Police were able to locate security cameras pointed at the area where the car was left and found it was parked there around 10.30 p.m. on Sunday, August 4th, so the day after she went missing. Unfortunately, the security camera footage was way too grainy to identify who was actually driving the car. Reports at the time said that a police canine picked up a scent from the car that led them to a nearby apartment complex, but eventually ruled that out as a potential lead. Police ended up going to the Liberty Gas Station in Lovingston, Virginia, to see if maybe she had stopped for gas on her way to Lynchburg. 
So this gas station is also a local hangout, or it was at the time, a local hangout spot for teens in the area. It's this big gas station, and then there's a McDonald's attached to it. I have actually been to this gas station a number of times uh, going to and from different family members' houses in uh, Virginia. It's a very distinct gas station off of Route 29. It's always really surreal when things like this happen in places that you're familiar with, because it's hard to picture something like that happening, just living your everyday life. Yeah, literally every piece of this case is that for me. <laughs> like, it's very wild uh, knowing the area where all these things happen, because you don't think it happens in the places that are so close to home for you. Exactly. It feels so weird when anything like that happens. Yeah. So sure enough, when they reviewed the security cameras, Alexis had been there the evening that she went missing. She's seen getting gas around 7.15 p.m. Then she goes into the store. And as she is coming into the store, the security cameras show a man holding the door for her as he's walking out and she's walking in. So the two don't actually speak to each other here. He just holds the door for her. And in the video footage, it almost looks like he's turning around and looking back at her as he's walking out. So police asked people working the day that Alexis went missing if they had seen this man or Alexis and, you know, what their demeanor, what Alexis's demeanor was. And did she talk to anybody, anything like that? An attendant said she thought that she saw Alexis and the man that held the door for her talk very briefly in the parking lot. So obviously this is someone who had some sort of contact with Alexis and could have possibly been the last person to see her alive. This man had a very distinct tattoo on his neck of Daffy Duck, which always gave me the creeps when I heard about it. But they saw on the surveillance camera this guy get into a white Suburban with camo trim on the bottom and drive away. And then shortly after that, Alexis can be seen leaving the gas station in her white Nissan Maxima headed in the same general direction. So law enforcement started looking for this guy with the Daffy Duck tattoo to question him. So going back to that location where her cell phone last pinged that they had searched a few days before, it's actually only about two miles or so from the Liberty gas station where she was seen on the security cameras. So law enforcement went back to this area on the 9th to search it again. And they focused their search on this abandoned property with this little dilapidated house on it. It was right off of Route 29, but because it was abandoned and this was the summertime, there was all this overgrown brush making it hard to see back onto the property from 29. So when they drive further back onto the property, they see... A white Suburban with camo trim wrapped around the bottom parked next to a camper. And out of the camper comes this man with a neck tattoo of Daffy Duck. And he introduces himself to law enforcement as Randy Taylor. So Randy invited detectives into the camper and they asked him about Alexis. He denies knowing who she is or having had any interaction with her. But as they looked around the camper, they found what looked like a diamond stud for maybe an earring or a nose ring sticking up out of his carpet. Now, Alexis, if you have seen pictures of her, she actually has a nose ring and she has a Monroe piercing, that piercing right above her upper lip. 
They also find what looks to be a ripped off fingernail lodged in the carpet. And back in his bedroom, they found a long black hair that looked like it came from an African-American person's hair on his pillow. So detectives still felt like they didn't really have enough evidence to do anything at this moment. So they took what they thought could be evidence and they left. Now, we're going to talk about this awful, gross human being named Randy Taylor for a minute. Randy Taylor was a 48-year-old man at the time of Alexis's disappearance. By all accounts, he was living in his camper on this abandoned property. He had a pretty extensive criminal history to include multiple theft and burglary charges, drug possession, as well as arson. He was described by a number of people, including law enforcement, the prosecutor, people that interacted with him in the community, as creepy. One quote I read was that he's the kind of guy who makes the hair on your neck stand up. He was apparently known for hanging around the Liberty gas station, like he would just sit in his car in the parking lot watching people coming and going. And also remember that this is a local hangout spot for teens in that area. People that worked at the gas station said he always made them feel uncomfortable and like he was just sitting around lurking. Police found out as they were looking into Randy Taylor as a potential suspect that Randy had visited a porn shop less than an hour before his encounter with Alexis, renting porn. Who rents porn from a store anymore? Um, The creepy guy who hangs out at a gas station to watch teenagers all day as a hobby. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) That is the only person I can think of. (laughs) But for real, if you look at pictures of him, he looks like the guy that rents hard copies of porn from a porn store. He really does, especially some of the other pictures, like later in those court pictures. Wow. It gives you, it makes your skin crawl. It does. Just knowing everything about him, you just like, you can't help Mm. but look at him and just get shivers. Yeah. When police really started digging into Randy Taylor's background, they found that he was actually the center of another missing persons case from three years earlier. Samantha Ann Clark was a 19-year-old girl living in Orange, Virginia, with her mom, Barbara, and her younger brother, Hunter. On the evening of September 13, 2010, Barbara left for work, leaving Samantha and Hunter at home. At some point in the evening, Barbara realized she had a missed call from her house phone and called back. Hunter answered the phone and told her that it was Samantha that had called, but that she had gone out. Samantha didn't have a cell phone, so she was probably calling to let her mother know that she'd be headed out for a while because she had planned on being home all that night. By the time Barbara got home the next morning, Samantha still wasn't back, but she went to sleep thinking Samantha would be home by the time she woke back up. When she wasn't, Barbara reported her missing on September 15, 2010. Police began doing searches in the area and at the same time started looking into what she was doing leading up to her disappearance. This led them to then 45-year-old Randy Taylor. Randy was a fairly new friend of Samantha. They had actually met at a restaurant called Northside right off of Route 29, about a week before her disappearance, where Samantha was having a meal with her mother after having attended a high school football game together. Randy had called Samantha's house five times the night she disappeared, and he was the last person to speak with Samantha before she left her house that night. 
And by his own admission, he was the last person to see her alive. The chief of the town of Orange Police Department said in a Dateline interview around the time that she went missing, Randy has been a suspect since day one, as with everyone in that group of people, because they were the last to speak with her and other things I can't go into. So jumping back to 2013, detectives had the diamond stud from the piercing, the fingernail, and the strand of hair sent to the crime lab for DNA testing, and they all came back as matches to Alexis. So when police confronted him with this information, after saying he didn't even know who Alexis was and being evasive with them, he completely changed his story, saying that Alexis and a, quote, black male with cornrows in his mid to late 20s driving a 20-year-old burgundy caprice with 22-inch wheels came back to his camper to buy weed. The two men drank a few beers and that Alexis left with this other guy. He identified this guy as Damien Bradley. When detectives spoke to him, Damien said he actually did know of Alexis, but had no idea who Randy was and said he hadn't been at the camper with Alexis and Randy. He also had a pretty solid alibi. He was in Alabama at the time she went missing. Police arrested Randy Taylor on August 11th, 2013, and charged him with the abduction of Alexis Murphy. On August 14th, the FBI came back to the property where Randy's camper was to search it again. This time in the camper, they found a balled up shirt under the sofa with a large blood stain on it. And inside the balled up shirt was black hair extensions and fake eyelashes. Testing confirmed that the blood was Alexis's and her DNA was on the extensions and eyelashes. While searching the property, police canines found Alexis's shattered iPhone not far from the camper. They also went into the abandoned home on the property where they found what is probably best described as a scrapbook where he took pornographic pictures and then pasted other photos on top of the faces of women in the pictures. This gets a little creepier. They found out later that the face pictures were actually one of his co-worker's daughter. This made my skin crawl. Like, he is just so fucking gross. Can you imagine finding this out as a parent? I would be sick and I would go off. I would be so fucking pissed. I would see red. I wouldn't even know what would happen. That insane. I can't even begin to, I, like you said, I, you would see red. It just is, I would want to murder somebody over something. Like, why do you have pictures of my daughter, first of all? And why are you posting them over your weird, porny scrapbook? On January 6, 2014, Randy was charged with first-degree murder in the Alexis Murphy case. This was pretty shocking because police still had not found her body. But the Nelson County Commonwealth's attorney felt that they had enough evidence to not only prove that she was dead, but that Randy had killed her. He even said in a True Crime Daily interview that, quote, we should not reward a person by not charging them with murder just because they're good at hiding the body. I felt like that was such a mic drop. It's true, though. <laughs> yeah. Randy emphatically maintained his innocence. He gave a number of different interviews from the jail. His trial started on May 1st, 2014, and the prosecution presented a really strong circumstantial case. They had the surveillance footage from the gas station in Lovingston. They had her phone that was found on his property. They also presented the t-shirt with Alexis's blood on it. 
all of the DNA of Alexis's that was collected from the camper, the hair, the piercing, and they even had an expert testify that the fingernail had been ripped off of her hand rather than clipped or anything like that, basically making the argument that there was clearly a violent struggle that happened in this camper. He was convicted of first-degree murder in the commission of an abduction and abduction with the intent to defile after five days of testimony and six hours of deliberation. Knowing that each of these convictions carried a sentence of a minimum of 20 years each and a maximum of life imprisonment, Randy Taylor and his attorney went to the Commonwealth's attorney wanting to cut a deal. Randy said that he would give police the location of Alexis's body after spending all of this time maintaining his innocence in exchange for a single 20-year sentence. I feel like, other than the fact that he is an absolute scumbag of a human being for doing this, I feel like this would be an excruciatingly hard decision to have to make as the family. Right. What a sick thing to hold over a grieving family. They just want closure at this point, and you're trying to hold that over their head just to get something for yourself. It's completely awful. He is a human shit stain. Truth. Alexis's family, as difficult as I am sure that decision must have been for them or contemplating that decision must have been for them, they were in complete agreement with the Commonwealth's attorney and outright rejected this offer. They did not want there to be a chance that he would ever get out and potentially do this to somebody else. In the sentencing portion of the trial, after hearing Alexis's family speak, Randy Taylor whispered to his attorney that he no longer wanted to be in the courtroom. Taylor's attorney, Michael Hallahan, asked the judge if his client could leave the courtroom. But before he could even answer the question, Taylor got up and rushed out. He was immediately grabbed by the Nelson County Sheriff, David Brooks, and when asked about Taylor leaving the courtroom with nothing to say, Alexis's aunt, Trina Murphy, said, quote, cowards usually run, you know? I think he was really expecting to get off. Which is insane, but I love her quote because it's so true. Cowards usually run. The judge decided to give Randy Taylor the two life sentences that he deserved. Her family, I will say, her fa- listening to them speak in different interviews, the strength and fortitude that they had through this entire ordeal, I can't even begin to fathom where that came from. But they were just, I mean, amazing. Yeah, that must have been really tough. And that has to take a lot out of you to be that way. But they really did a good job through this whole thing, as much as one can in a situation like this. Now, like we said earlier, around the same time in Central Virginia, there were a number of incidents of missing young girls. Obviously, there were Alexis and Samantha Clark, but there were also two other high-profile cases in the Charlottesville area. On October 17, 2009, a 20-year-old Virginia Tech student named Morgan Harrington went missing while attending a concert at the University of Virginia. Her body was discovered in January of 2010 on a private farm not far from the UVA campus. Her case hadn't been solved by the time Alexis went missing. 
Then on September 13th, 2014, an 18-year-old UVA student named Hannah Graham went missing while out one evening in Charlottesville. Her body was discovered about five weeks later on an abandoned property in the county, not far from UVA. Now, when Hannah's body was discovered, DNA from her murderer matched DNA taken when Morgan Harrington's body was discovered. So the police now know that at least two of these cases are linked. So I don't want us to go too much into detail on this case because I think we'll actually cover it in its own episode at some point. But the reason we bring it up is because when the picture of the main suspect in those cases was released to the public, people who had followed Alexis's case immediately started questioning if there was possibly a connection here. And here's why. The main suspect was a local guy by the name of Jesse Matthew. Jesse was a large black man who looked like he could have been in his late 20s at the time of Hannah's murder. He had dreadlocks, but at points in his life, he had had cornrows. Very similar to the description that Randy gave of the third person at the camper that night that Alexis left with. Now, Randy had also given the name of an actual person, and it was not Jesse Matthew, but it was enough to make people pause. News outlets pretty quickly started questioning whether he could have been an accomplice to Randy in Alexis's death. And of course, the human shit stain known as Randy Taylor had the same thought and started reaching out to news outlets saying, that's the guy who was at my camper with Alexis. I'm innocent, blah, blah, blah. Jesse was eventually convicted of Hannah and Morgan's murders, as well as a rape in Northern Virginia, but police pretty quickly ruled out his involvement in Alexis's death through DNA and through other means. Through the years, law enforcement continued searching for Alexis as tips and leads came in. And in December of 2020, a body was found on a private property along Route 29, just north of Lovingston, Virginia. The Nelson County Sheriff's Office released a statement on February 17th, 2021, announcing that they had finally, after seven years, recovered the remains of Alexis Murphy. The Murphy family released a statement saying, quote, our family is so grateful for the continuing love, support, and prayers for Alexis and our family over the past seven years. While we have been grieving the loss of Alexis since 2013, we remained hopeful that she would be found alive and well. Alexis was a fashionista, athlete, and joker of our family. We were blessed to have loved her for 17 years, and her memory will continue to live on through us all. Our family would like to extend a heartfelt thanks and sincere gratitude to the citizens of Nelson County, the FBI, the Virginia State Police, the Nelson County Sheriff's Office, and all of the search and rescue teams for your commitment and unwavering support to find Alexis. You all kept the promise made in 2013 to bring Alexis home. Around the same time that it was confirmed that the body discovered was Alexis Murphy's, Chief Fenwick of the Town of Orange Police Department held a press conference to announce that Samantha Clark's case was being reclassified from a missing person case to an abduction and murder case, quote, due to new information and advances in investigative and forensic technology, and that technology was not available at the time that Samantha went missing has allowed us to develop new investigative leads. Obviously, it's heartbreaking that Alexis wasn't able to be brought home alive, but it's amazing that the Nelson County Sheriff's Office 
never gave up on finding her. And because of that, her family is able to put her to rest and have some sort of closure, whatever that might look like for them. And hopefully here soon, the same will be true for Samantha Clark and her family. And hopefully they get the evidence that they need to get justice for her. I hope so. That is all we have for you on this episode. But if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a review, preferably a nice one. So it makes it easier for other people to find our podcast. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Serial Banter Podcast for updates on new episodes and other fun little things that we share on there. Next week, we'll be talking about Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. Ramirez is a well-known serial killer and rapist who murdered at least 13 people in California from June of 1984 until he was caught in August of 1985. The judge who upheld Ramirez's 19 death sentences said that he exhibited cruelty, callousness, and a viciousness beyond any human understanding. Thank you guys so much for listening today. Please reach out to us through Instagram or our email at serialbanterpodcast at gmail.com if you have any comments about the case or any suggestions on things we should do in the future, or even if you just want to chat with us about true crime. We would love to hear from you guys. Bye. Bye.